Hey friends, welcome to Jesus Never Ran. I'm your host, Matt Kinzer, and this week we're doing something kind of fun. We are counting down the top five most downloaded episodes on this podcast from 2021. So yesterday we kicked things off and we listened to the number five most downloaded podcast this year, which was God in Nature with Diane Bryant and Scott Jenkins. Now this next one, another one that I just truly enjoyed from the bottom of my heart recording with this guest. Now, I'm a bit of an Enneagram nut. I, I'm an Enneagram 7, and that has really been helpful to understand myself and understand people around me, so I've really appreciated it. And so, the number four most downloaded episode on Jesus Never Ran this year, drum roll please, is Enneagram for Wholeness with Annie Diamond. Enjoy! Diamond, and I am a lot of things. But the main reason that I know a lot of people in the world is through Enneagram work. That's the shape that my vocation has taken as of the last, I guess, 10 years. But besides being an Enneagram teacher and coach, I'm a student of practical theology at the University of Aberdeen. I'm a university chaplain at the University of Edinburgh. I live in St. Andrews, Scotland, so I kind of traverse the eastern seaboard of Scotland, but all of that as someone who left the United States a few years ago to study and in many ways to escape the dread that I felt in talking about my faith in the American context. And when I say escape, I don't really mean that, uh, to give myself space to heal. When I felt called back to the academic context, it was an invitation that came as a remembering, really, of the ways that God had uh, met me in my journey and the ways that I had been um, running from having to have any of those conversations because I had just been hurt in a lot of church contexts. So I came here for a lot of reasons, but I think it's been a real great gift to be able to settle into this place and to be able to re-engage in ways that I've needed to. I think so many of us can identify when you say escape I think that's a a word a lot of us have used for the feelings that we felt about church hurt or organized religion in general. And I think we can also identify with that reality that it's not that we're escaping faith or divinity or any of that. We're escaping something very specific that was hurtful or that didn't make sense in the context of kind of our evolving selves or our evolving faith. So do you mind digging in as much as you're comfortable sharing about what it was that, or what were some of the things that disenfranchised you from your earlier faith traditions in life? Yeah, well, I want to start by saying this is a, I feel really grateful to say that this is a pretty joyful in some ways story for me to be able to tell right now. It's not a necessarily collectively joyful story I recognize. I hold a lot of my friends and communities hurt around issues of disenfranchisement, but I'll say that I'm at a point where I've been sort of able to take back up a place meaningfully within the church and to the point where I'm sort of pursuing ordination. And I'll, I'll tell you the story, putting it in that context, because I think there's so much disaggregation in grief, so much moving away. Um, and I think in such an isolating and difficult time, it's important to hope for re-aggregation. <laughs> and so maybe this can serve as a some kind of hopeful story. But Annie, I think that's 
such an important thing that you said as well. And I land in the same spaces, like after the disenfranchisement that I've had and the hurt that I've had in my own life, you know, I sit here today, pretty excited and pretty fulfilled in the work engaging in faith conversations that I do. And so, I mean, that's part of the hope of this podcast is not only that people could identify with others of us that have had struggles in hurt in some of our faith traditions, but also to have hope that there is something else out there. There are other spaces for us to engage in our faith and we don't just have to run away altogether. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. And thanks for creating this space. Yeah. So I guess for me, the, my, I grew up kind of non-denom. I mean, we moved a lot. So I went to a lot of different churches and actually it's a really, I'm really thankful at this point for this part of my story where I went to four different high schools, all actually three different high schools, but four separate years, all Christian schools, all different denominations, all really um, afraid of different kinds of things and trying to protect um, the integrity of their understanding of faith in different kinds of ways, which is a really interesting inter-subcultural experience to have as a 14 to 18 year old. But in the midst of all of that, I had a really long kind of prolonged spiritual experience over throughout a year when I was 17. And in the midst of that, um, I both felt immense grief for the church and um, I knew God's love in a way that was, um, I mean, I could cry just even thinking about it. And so I'm so thankful for that experience, really, because I have experienced a lot of people in the midst of profound loss of faith in their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. I coach some of these people, and um, they've lived with so sadly with an illusion of who God is as given to them through, not, not that everything was illusion, but that there's been profound hurt in church communities and that's been transmuted onto who God is. And so that's really devastating to me. And I'm in that way, really thankful for actually for the hurt that came early um, or the grief that came early. So that happened when I was, you know, 18, 17, 18. And then I went to college, had a couple of profound experiences throughout college um, as well some of them being working amongst homeless youth, some of them being um, just experiences of being met in some of my own issues. Um, and it was during college that I felt God calling me to be a pastor. Uh, but of course, in a non-denominational setting, what pastor means is not really clear. And especially at that time in evangelicalism, that was not normal for women to want that uh, if it wasn't for, you know, mothers and families or something, which is a beautiful vocation, but it's not as I always thought of myself as teaching men. So, <laughs> um, no, not just men, but, but anyway, so I, I met um, significant resistance and the resistance came from my dad. Um, initially, he was the one who I called to tell in my excitement that the Lord had spoken to me and that this is what I knew was where I was being called to go. Um, and so, you know, just consonant with the the fair of the day, he responded as I think many fathers uh, at that time might have done, which is that he didn't believe women could be pastors. And, you know, and so I wept and, and, you know, I knew that that was the answer before I called. I knew, you know, I just, I had this like, Oh, you know, maybe I'll be, maybe it'll be special and maybe it'll be different, you know, and this is my experience and really wanting to share it. But, you know, my dad's not um, any, any different than, um, any other person in that, you know, we're profoundly influenced by the cultures that shape us. And so he's just a part of that culture and he's actually changed his views on it since then. But at that time, 
that was the resistance that that I met and and it wasn't you know again it wasn't just him it was a cultural a culture and culturally pretty normative and we'll maybe get into this I'm Enneagram type four <laughs> um being seen is really important to me and you know I I felt profoundly unseen. On the one hand, I felt profoundly seen by God. And on the other hand, I felt profoundly unseen by my community. I went home my senior year of college and I was in church, in a church service, worship service, another evangelical church with my parents. Um, I, you know, I, I experienced some good teaching there at different times, um, but I was so angry. Um, I was so angry at evangelicalism. I was just livid. And of course, thankfully, this kind of church was dimly lit with fog machines and loud music. And it was nice because I'm really bad at hiding how I feel. So I'm not singing. I am seething. I am just so enraged standing in this list, listening to whatever song I was listening to and not singing and standing next to my dad and being like, you know, what the hell? <laughs> and so confused and really, I mean, crying out in that moment. I was, it was um, a really prayerful moment, but angry. It was angry prayer. And in that moment, you know, I felt the Lord ask me, invite me to reach out and put my hand on my dad's shoulder. And, you know, again, I'm a kind of can't hide how I feel sort of authentic type person. So the idea of putting my hand on someone's shoulder who I am angry at um, was just sort of beyond the pale. (laughs) Absolutely no way. Um, But it was like the invitation just grew stronger and stronger. And I'm sure that the sermon was about forgiveness. I'm not sure. You know, I'm, I'm building it up in my head now. It's like, this is like, this is the invitation. My invitation of my faith is to forgive my dad. But the same moment, the forgiveness, the idea of forgiving my dad is like, well, is that I can't do this. This I will justify what he's done. You know, like there's this whole big like narrative I have that if to forgive someone means that I'm not holding them accountable and whatever, and the you know the reaching out, and I just didn't want to do it. I really didn't. But I did. I mean, there was just it was like I, I can't. I won't say that it was irresistible, but there was this sense that like this is this is the invitation, and this I, I don't know what it is about, but I must do it. So I reach out. Um, put my hand on my dad's shoulder and he he starts to weep my dad starts weeping and invites my mom and i out of the service and when we get out of the service he says that when i had put my hand on his shoulder god spoke to him and said you don't need to parent her she hears my voice so basically god relieves my father of his father duties and becomes father to both of us in one fell swoop A couple of things that come to mind when you share that story is, is number one, one of the things that's happened in my life is when I walked away from the evangelical church and began to explore different spaces of faith, one of the things that the group of people that I was kind of walking away from wanted to put on me is that I just need to feel God's love more. And so it's interesting that early on in your story, you shared that it was quite the opposite that you, you felt an immense sense of God's love. And I would agree with that, that really from the point that I stepped out of evangelical circles to now has been maybe short of early on in my life has been the, the point where I've experienced divinity in such close, intimate ways, more so than I ever did in the midst of that rock and roll type of service that you identify. And then the other piece 
is that that action that you took with your dad you really had a couple of choices there you could have chosen to separate yourself from that church from even even him as your father which is our oh, don't get me wrong plenty of that happened <laughs> i'm sure it did i'm sure it did but that that feeling uh, so many of us have that feeling so intensely that we just want to walk away from it all without being engaged with those people at all or with people in that tradition at all and so i think the act of humility that you took to engage with your father is I mean, I think we just need more of that as we walk forward or as we evolve in our faith journey, that humility to keep in contact in beautiful and meaningful ways like that is where some true healing can take place. Because if we go outside of that and just harbor all of this hurt and bitterness towards the people that have hurt us, you know, we're really stunted as we, as we move forward. So so then you have that experience and then you have this desire to experience your faith in a new way which is a lot of listeners are in that space right now. And so what were some of the things that you did to move forward, not only just from that moment, but really to move forward in your faith journey? Well, I would say I ran for a little while, actually. Jesus never ran, but Annie sure did. Um, <laughs> I see I, what you did there. Yeah, uh-huh, I would say, yeah, and not in like a way, I'm not, I don't tell this story to sort of shame myself, but just to narrate the... The journey that I took, which was, um, you know, I went looking for places where I could perform my faith, where I didn't have to talk about it at all. And so what I ended up doing, and and some of those places are beautiful and good, and I would return there in a heartbeat and participate there. Um, But there was something for me that um, still felt really lacking in the midst of all that. So I went to these, I went to um, a wonderful um, Jesuit university where I learned a lot about Ignatian spirituality, where I learned a lot about Catholic social teaching um, in the context of a, I was the director for a living learning community for students interested in service, faith, and justice. So there was a lot of emphasis on social location and inequality and diversity and inclusion and all of those things. And when I think about reaching out and forgiving my dad in that moment, putting my hand on his shoulder, that's not individualistic faith. That's relational, right? That's a, that is a faith that draws us out into the vulnerability of being in the world, into the suffering and sacrifice of being in the world, into the humility, which is always uh, relational. It was, it was wonderful because in some ways I found another branch of that root source that um, helped me to think through the sort of social implications of a story that provided the hope that had me reach out and touch my dad. (laughs) Like, like this sort of, like, there's so much that is uncertain um, and that we have to face up to about ourselves and about our world if we function with Christian hope. (laughs) Um, And so I think that was a really wonderful place to learn those things in the context of a community that was, um, you know, Catholics are really good about having their, their sort of educational model is like, a habitus model, like you inhabit it. So, you know, we talk about there, there are lots of ways that the Catholic church feels really exclusionary, but in their educational models, particularly the Jesuit order, so much of their work is about 
we, we are founded on this faith and you can come and embody it and practice it. You might not know anything about what it's about yet, um, but in the practicing of it, you'll learn about the kind of hope that energizes this sort of endeavor. And so that's what I was really thankful to find there because I didn't have to sign anything on a dotted line to matriculate, which I had had to do at every other school I'd ever been to because I was at all Christian schools all the way through. And so not only did I have to sign statements of faith, so did my parents. You know, when I'm in my most compassionate place, I can understand why that is because there are so many things that in in those places, it wouldn't make sense to educate people if they didn't understand why they were there. But that's why I liked the Catholic model, which is like, no, you may not understand it yet, but try it out. See. Um, And so that was really wonderful. And I think a lot of people, when we think about Catholicism, and I grew up Catholic and I love the Catholic church, a lot of people have a very specific idea about what it means to be Catholic or what Catholicism is. But usually we're basing that on a very narrow view of what Catholicism stands for. And a lot of people don't understand some of the things or have never heard of some of the things that you just identified. But really the, some of the history of Catholicism is some of the most interesting and beautiful forms of of faith that are out there and so much mysticism and and so many beautiful examples of of embodying faith and practicing faith for sure so thanks for sharing that so you you mentioned how you kind of began your work in the enneagram and the enneagram is something that i'm fascinated by i'm nowhere near any sort of expert i just read a lot about it explore a lot about myself and my friends <laughs> through the enneagram yeah. model it's so fascinating what you can learn and then to to think about that in more of a rich faith context is you know just takes it to a whole new level so how did you start your work with the enneagram i know you mentioned it briefly and then maybe share a little bit about what you're doing now with the enneagram and how you're engaging faith in that way um the way it began was you know somebody throwing me a book while i was working at a coffee shop and saying do you know about the enneagram and i had so much time at the coffee shop between classes because it's a university coffee shop that i just like read and basically memorized um Riso and husband's like early book so i started teaching it at that time in college, just like for student groups or whatever. But the reason that it captivated me is that I was a philosophy student and me and a lot of other philosophy students, I just found like being pretty depressed actually. And I was thinking, and and I remember thinking, I think all philosophy students should have to know their Enneagram type so that instead of using ideas to fix the problems of their lives, um, sort of these theoretical approaches to being human, um, they could actually, we could actually narrate what's really going on and what we're really afraid of. Because I think a lot of times people try to use um, analysis and theory to solve what we're afraid of, and it just never works. <laughs> um, I, we, you could actually you could actually narrate a lot of um, evangelicalism or any culture through that lens um, would be to say like, we are deeply vulnerable to being afraid. It's why wildly, I know a lot of people like kind of bristle at this, but these days I'm like, I think the most important verse in scripture is that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom because I actually don't think humans can escape fear. And so the question is what we're afraid of. And I think the things we should be afraid of are the things that actually have power. The wonderful thing about being a Christian is that you can both be afraid of God who has power and also witness the person of Jesus Christ, who is that power manifest in this kind and gentle, albeit honest and sometimes frightening to behold um, figure. So I think that's where, for me, this idea of 
needing to come down out of abstraction and into the lived reality of our lives to deal with the fact that we're all afraid. And our fears are different, which is why I like the Enneagram so much. Um, sometimes we get really abstract about fear, right? So we tell a story like, oh, you know, it's, I laugh now when people are like, you know, I mean, all people are afraid of being a failure. <laughs> and I'm like, no, not all people are. Like, that's actually just not true. Um, not all people are afraid of being wrong. Not all people are afraid of being unhelpful or unliked. Like, that's just not true. We can't generalize like that. And so the practical reality that we're all afraid and that we all have strategies of dealing with that fear so that we don't actually have to face up to it. I think that's the, the fascinating thing. It's like we, we don't want to encounter the vulnerability of our own fear and that we're all actually effing terrified. <laughs> um, and we don't look all look like it, but it is scary to be a human being. Um, if you're actually awake and living in the world, or if you're not, it's still scary to be a human being. And there are so many different fears that we can't all fear them at the same time, um, which is great because that's where we need each other. But I think for me, it just was so profoundly resonant to then be able to look at even what people were fighting about in academia and to say, oh my gosh, they're all just defending themselves from the things they're afraid of happening. And I think beliefs are important if they point us to what's real. But I think a lot of times what's real is that we're afraid of something. <laughs> and so for me, I just think, you know, it's important to believe true things about the world, what we can hope in and what we can trust in. And sometimes I talk about like, our beliefs being the arms that wrap themselves around those things that we love. The problem is that sometimes we just love the things that keep us safe instead of the things that are really true. And that's a lot of times our concepts. There's so much we don't know and so much we can't know. And it's so hard to be only in one position, but that is the gift. I mean, I think that's one of the gifts of a spirituality that's formed around a dependence on a God that both welcomes our fears, meets us in our fears, and guides us, speaks to us, protects us in those, and not in ways that we understand. So that protection doesn't, you know, take the shape that we think it should take. What type of work do you do now with the Enneagram then? Now I, I teach, so I do workshops and retreats. Um, I particularly love to do workshops and retreats in the context of faith communities. Because I think uh, the Enneagram is a tool, and I think tools are always used towards certain ends and with certain kinds of hope of what they will do. And I don't think the Enneagram provides the narratives that we need to counteract some of the false narratives of the personality. So I think it's important to have sacred stories alongside the stories of the personality. Um, but not everyone has those. So And, and I coach people of all faiths, um, including um, amalgam or kind of nondescript faiths. But, but it's really fun work because actually helping people narrate where their hope comes from in the work and what they mean by when they use the word love or security or worth or those sorts of things and where they think that comes from. I think we don't get asked those questions very often. And I think the places that we used to get asked those questions were in religious settings. And I think more people are less inclined to be there, but they're still important questions. So it's really fun because I get to do that in the Enneagram coaching work. And so I do that. And then I'm just actually, I launched this week a course for this fall, a cohort called Spirit 
spirituality and academic life, discerning and examining our postures. And it's also, uh, we'll use the Enneagram in three or four sessions, but it's a 10 session course that's really all about how we narrate what it is we're doing in our academic work and what kind of imagination has informed that work and what kind of postures that allows us to take up. All right. Last question in the work that you're doing. I mean, you've come out of a lot and gone through a lot in life, like all of us have. Right. And so the last question I ask everybody is in the midst of so much, what feels like chaos, a lot of the times that's going on in our world. And even in our faith circles, often, where are some of the spaces in your life and in your work that you see hope in this world? I love that question. Um, (laughs) and it's so funny because I was just thinking before this call, like, I don't know why the verse always be prepared um, to give a reason for the hope that you have has been like on my heart and mind. And I actually struggle because Um, I think that's one of the great devastations of Christianity today is that the idea that someone would ask you where your hope comes from implies that you're doing something really hard and you're doing it with a kind of perseverance that belies your imagination and your hope is rooted somewhere that gives you the kind of strength that you need to endure something quite difficult. Um, And so for me, the, the spaces that give me hope are I think where people are they're along in their you know the big word is like deconstruction journey and and those spaces don't give me hope to be honest the deconstructive spaces don't they I'm glad they exist people need them they're not hope filled for me because the reaggregation hasn't happened so uh, I would say I have certain friendships there are certain um, ministries there are certain yeah relationships I have where there's new life growing um, where I didn't think life would grow. And so I think that's how I would narrate the hopeful spaces. Like my relationship with my dad, you know, having told that story, like to me, that's a hopeful space. Not because my dad and I believe the same thing, but because that's where work is being done. Not like the work, like everyone uses it in this sort of like woke culture or whatever. But I mean, like work, like, like it's really hard because it's hard for us to see each other sometimes. Um, but it's hopeful because we aren't abandoning each other in the midst of that. I would say that's the way I can talk about hope. Cause unless I can get close to something to see what's really going on, like all the language and the, like whatever that I can see from the outside doesn't really provide me hope unless I can see and get close to what's really happening. So places where people stay stories where people stay. Special thanks to Annie Diamond for being on the show this week. For more information on Annie and what she's up to, just go to enneagramforwholeness.com. There will be a direct link to that in the show notes. And as always, if you want to support this podcast, simply subscribe to it, give it a five-star rating, and write a review. 